0: Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrant. And welcome to episode 33. I hope everyone is well. Uh, I hope the rugby season is treating you well if it's just finished for you in whatever part of the world you are, or if you're halfway through, most likely in Australia. The international rugby season is springing back into action with the July internationals, and it's a very exciting time. Australia are this week about to face the old enemy for the newly named Ella Mobs Cup. And there's a bit of history for me and England, because obviously I live here, uh, and I've been looking at the the last few years where I've sort of started the gold digger journey and it's usually started or it's spiked in frustration after an English loss. Uh, and going back to 2016 when we lost for the first time 3-0 to, to England. Uh, that certainly started the spiral for me of what has happened to Australian rugby. So I'm really hoping that The guys can turn it around this week, and perhaps over the next three weeks, uh, we have a bit of positivity looking ahead to what will be a very interesting season. Today's guest is someone who you may have heard before on other podcasts. He's certainly been quite prolific of late, and he is, of course, the other half of Gainline Athletics. His name is Simon Strawn, and he works with Ben Darwin. Now, we've heard from Ben quite a lot now. Um, we, we devoted two episodes to cohesion and really digging down into what it was and and how it uh, works in practice. And of course, I've been referring to it a lot in some recent episodes. And you probably, if you follow uh, us on social media, you probably hear me banging on about it and, and bringing up all sorts of examples of it. Um, I, I'm not going to shy away from that because I do think that there is still something so important about uh, the work that Gainline have done, uh, how I think it's resonating in not just rugby, but a lot of other sports. And I think the validation of that is the fact that they as a company uh, work with and get a lot of interest from some pretty successful sporting teams around the world, not just in rugby, but other sports. So, you know, I'm going to to probe and dig where I think we need to to look for ways in which cohesion could assist Australian rugby getting back to where it needs to be which is a consistent and competitive uh, power in world rugby. So anyway without further ado uh, I was able to talk with Simon a bit about his backstory and a bit more of an also an up-to-date look at uh, the rugby competitions that have just ended and uh, the internationals that are coming up especially with a focus on the Wallabies. So here's today's episode hot off the press as it was uh, the two of us talking less than 24 hours ago. So I'm here with um, Simon from Gainline Analytics and Simon, it's been a few times since we've, uh, well, we've spoken a few times in the last couple of years and I've, I've really enjoyed the chats with yourself and, and Ben. And it seems like a, an age ago that I was actually in your, your office in Melbourne uh, it would probably only just over two years, but um, a lot has happened since then. But um, no, look, I'm, I'm really excited to chat to you because this is coming off the back of the last couple of months where I've sort of put out some podcasts really presenting a lot of the work you and Ben have, have, have done over a large number of years. And I've also been able to speak to people like Stuart Lancaster, um, who I know is a big advocate and also is working uh, at Leinster, which is you know probably one of the best exponents of a lot of the work that you guys have, have presented but anyway thanks for joining me and um, yeah how are things in uh, in your end of the neck of the woods?
1: Uh, yes well firstly thank you for having me on Matt um, long time listener first time caller <laughs> uh, I have to say um, yeah very busy actually in our neck of the woods especially being at the end of season so the end of the season in super rugby the end of the season in uh, the premiership end of the season in the MLR URC etc so it's actually quite a A busy time of the year for us and then obviously going into the the test window um, gives us a different focus uh, in that way so it's busy in a different way and then of course with all the other uh, work we're doing so and just to clarify for everyone out there listening that Matt is not a paid representative of Gainline Analytics (laughs) he is obviously an enthusiast uh, of what we do and and this I, I think it comes from the fact that um, Matt, you spent a reasonable amount of time with us, and especially in the office, and you really got to have that opportunity to sit down and have a real deep dive into what yeah. w- we we do. And I think that's probably why um, potentially um, you've got a different sort of perspective and how that relates um, than a lot of other people that's probably out there yeah. um, in the world that may only see what we do from you know 100. 140 or 280 characters on Twitter or the odd post here and there, so um, which is potentially why um, uh, you know you, you're a little bit more um, uh, vocal about the sort of the work we do. So
0: yeah, look, I think it's a fair point to make. Absolutely, I can I can confirm that I have not been um, paid anything by uh, Gayline or their affiliates. Um, I guess it sort of came off the back of you know the the the, the amount of time I spent researching and 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 building up towards diving into the um the doco but you know i, I spoke to some people you know and i won't get list of the names but people who I, I would have thought are the some of the some of the best brains rugby and certainly australian rugby has and very few people could give me could articulate reasons as to why things were the way they were other than sort of referring to you know things that have happened in the past looking at you know events in in the business side of things I think coming across Ben and then yourself and seeing the work your company have done, it's to my knowledge, the only group that have comprehensively put together something that's, you know, it's evidence-based. Like it's, it's, it's very hard to argue against all of the work you guys do. I know there's some people that will kind of challenge it. And you as you said, there's only so much you guys can reveal. And you very kindly um, gave me an insight into some of your your inner workings, but you know, I'm sort of just comparing what I've sort of then started to try to put together using um, a lot of your your um, your work, and much of which is publicly available as well. I might add. Um, and 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 I'm I'm sort of weighing that up against other arguments and other things that people put forward. And you know, I'm I, I used to work as an analyst, and you know, I I sort of work now in, a, in an area where you know you need to have facts and you need to have that sort of substantiated to be able to sort of put forward arguments. And so that's sort of why I, I guess I'm sort of pushing it, because to me, a lot of what I say on Twitter or, or social media or even just talk to people in general about what I think Australian rugby needs, I'm trying to always bring it back to what I think is substantiated by the evidence of the last 20, 30, 40 years, maybe even further, of rugby in Australia and also what works across other sporting codes and, and, and also rugby
1: overseas. Yeah, I think you summed it up. I think you summed it up. I think at the end of the first C word, the C word podcast episode, uh, when you said, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was, it was something along the lines of, I haven't necessarily come across anybody else that's articulated or put it in an objective manner before, yeah. which is, which is basically what we try and do. So that's really the crux of our work is trying to create an objective way of looking at performance. And this is the way we've chosen to do it through our particular method. And we think our particular method is strong. I mean, so strong that the fact that we've chosen to, I mean, this is the heel we've decided to die on, so to speak, because mm. Ben and I have formed a company. You know, we are basically decided that this is our, you know, future professional lives. So it's not, it's not just a couple of us thinking, Hey, this is a good idea. Let's put a few ideas out that we, we've, we've formed something to the point where, you know, we have investors, you know, investing yeah. in our business, you know, we, you know, we, we we think we've got a pretty strong business um, model. We we're looking. We work in corporate. Um, we're moving into funds management. So there's a whole different area that we look at, and sports just one part of it. But the great thing about sport is it's like this little microcosm that allows us to understand the dynamics of cohesion. Because you know, it's 35 people in the squad, 15 or 11 or 13 or five. know, play each game within that there are KPIs and so it's a really good way to understand the dynamics of it Mm. and often people sometimes people are stuck in their own little area their own specific niche and that might be rugby or rugby league or football or the AFL and they only necessarily have that scope the fact that we work across multiple sports in multiple sort of dynamics gives us a much different sort of perspective and view around performance and that's like looking in sports that have salary caps versus sports that don't have salary caps, sports that uh, have salary caps, but pretend not to have salary caps. What's the different dynamic in that? And so it gives us this really different uh, perspective on performance in general and understanding what can we learn from say the NFL about the way they do things and bring that back. Or what can we learn from rugby and bring that back? Or what can we learn from corporate from a cohesion perspective and take that back into sport um, from those perspectives. So it, it, it allows us to really understand the dynamic of cohesion or the understanding between the participants and what impacts that, whether it's structure, whether it's time, whether it's um, your desire to purchase skill, all these different factors. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it sort of goes into the big melting pot that we call cohesion analytics, um, mm-hmm. which really stemmed originally from um, us looking at, um, and, you know, Ben's talked about this in the previous podcast, I think, about, um, you know, studies at Wall, in Wall Street, studies in 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 um, surgery crews and other aspects like that. So what we do isn't necessarily new. We've just applied it in a different way. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, hopefully for us that we've got enough evidence there. And, and that goes when we work with teams, when we work with companies, that we've got enough evidence for them to be satisfied that there's a base of what we do. So, yeah. Um, I'd, I'd yeah. say that's
0: one for me, and I mean, you know, I, I haven't obviously not kind of wanting you to lay out your your clientele, yeah. but the fact that you guys are in demand, and I know that there are big name sporting organizations that are talking to you guys and you work for, like, you know, to me, that is, it's got to be a sort of a, a massive kind of um, I a validation for you guys that the work you're doing is, is spot on, and, and then people see massive value in it.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, sp- sp- sport particularly is a—it's a weird environment to work in because it's in—in in some cases it's very much ego-driven. Often we go into an environment, and—and and when we try and describe things objectively through our data, it sometimes works against people's perception about what drives performance, and works mm-hmm. against people's own own um, perception about themselves in a way. So it—it it creates these really interesting dynamics around. Um, sort of the perception of the drivers of performance. And that's why, I mean, ultimately we call ourselves a governance a governance analytics business. So we work from the top down of the organisation. So it's not about how can we help the coach? It's actually how, how do we help the board? How do we help the chairman? How do we help the CEO? And that ultimately filters down to what happens on the pitch because, I mean, people are aware, they've heard about our TWI metric teamwork index, but that's really controlled by the, the governance, by the board. But then, you know, a decision, and the way I describe it is, a missed tackle on the field, can essentially be a function of a decision made by the board three years earlier, and that's sort of the way we look at it from a, from a, um, cohesion analytics perspective. But the punter, the fan off the street, just, I mean, they don't care. Mm. If it's a missed tackle, it's a miss tackle. It's a player's fault. Yeah. And that's sort of that that, but they don't. In saying that, that you know, it's not the it's not the fans' fault that, that that's the way they look at it. It's just the you know it's just the way the 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 the, the sport's perceived and and how skill is the ultimate driver and yeah. um um you know skill is um um people look at it as, as the major factor yeah. um when it comes to performance. So- I want
0: to I look. I'm assuming that most of my listeners um and if they are any new listeners, please go back and listen to the previous episodes there's a part one and part two where i spoke with ben um called the c word and i think that lays out the history of your company and and how it sort of evolves i don't really want to necessarily repeat that with you today but what i do want to know is um just your general background how you fell into rugby because like me you're from a a a non-rugby um state in in australia and uh you know it, it seems like an interesting journey you took
1: uh, well, it is. I I've sort of have a very non-traditional background. And um, I actually pinch myself every day, knowing where I've come from, that I literally, um, you know, every couple of weeks, it might be Stuart Lancaster or Scott Robinson or somebody else mm. um, that I'm having conversations with just basically knowing sort of where I came from. So I was actually originally born in England. So I came to Australia as a, as a, as a young kid, but I was very much an Anglophile and actually moved to South Australia. So I actually grew up in Woomera of all places, which is if anyone knows of Woomera, it's in the middle of nowhere. So <laughs> my um, dad was in the RAF and he was involved in the, the rocket, the rocket testing um, back um, in the, in the um, sort of mid to late sixties. Wow. And so we lived there, but then I, I, we moved and I actually grew up in the Brossa Valley which is as you can imagine not the uh, hotbed for rugby in Australia um, but I was at I was an anglophile as a kid my favorite sport was soccer you know I played cricket in the summer and my soccer but there was no way I, I didn't play a winter sport because I purposely didn't play AFL because it was it was an Australian sport so I thought I was being cool about it but uh, <laughs> looking back I was probably just being a dick but uh, you know, I had, a, I had a Tottenham Hotspur jacket I used to wear to high school, and like 99.9% of the school just looked at this jacket and said, "I have no idea what that is." But yeah. you know, I felt good about myself. So, <laughs> ironically, now, ironically now, my hometown of Lindock in the Barossa Valley has its own. Um, uh, there's a rugby team that's based out of out of there, the Barossa Rams, um, which I just I just find amazing considering of you know what it was like when I was a kid um, there, um, but. Um, but in saying that, you know, as a kid, um, um, kangaroos tours to the British Isles or um, wallabies tours, but it was really the 91 Rugby World Cup was the thing that turned me towards rugby or, or piqued my interest. Mm. Uh, and, and that's probably a pivotal time for a lot of people, like that success through the World Cup. So um, when I went to university, when I went to um, move to Adelaide, I started playing rugby. Um, but because I was a bit more mature, there was an assumption that you knew what you, you, you'd you already played. And so I wasn't necessarily being coached. So I actually started doing a coach coaching courses as soon as I started playing because I wanted to learn more about the game. So I actually started coaching or understanding the principles of coaching when I started playing at the same time. And through that experience, I ended up doing some coaching in schools, Um at the same time as playing but the thing that for me was because i started late in the sport and it wasn't ingrained in us in me the sport that i didn't take anything for granted like um this is what you need to do why do you need to do that because that's the way it's already always been done was not it was not the way i looked at it it was always but why do you need to do it so i always would try to take it back to first principles and so it actually gave me a different perspective on how to look at the sport because it didn't come natural Mm. um, to me so um, and I think that's always actually put me in good stead when it comes to looking at things especially around the sport and other sports to try and take it back to first principles and not necessarily take anything for granted into the way that the, the sport works which is fundamental I think to the thinking and the logic that was one of the threads that 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 created cohesion analytics in a way. Yeah. Um, but I was I was playing rugby at uh, you know I was average rugby player um, as we all as we all tend to be except for the elite um, level. But um, I actually uh, met my wife at my rugby club. She was an American exchange student. She rocked up at our O week bench uh, table and said, uh, "I've come to play rugby." And and we said, "Sorry, we don't have a women's team." So she came back the next day with fourteen friends and said, "You do now." <laughs> <laughs> and and then they said to me, so I'm a new coach. Can you coach this team? Literally six months later, that, that team went away to the Australian National Championships and represented South Australia in, in Canberra. Oh, um, wow. and then so she went back to the States uh, after it. So she was from America. Mm-hmm. So she went back to the States. Then after six months, I sold up. And because we sort of at the end of this rugby tour, I went, hey, wait a minute, I think something's going on here between us. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I lived in America for a while. Played rugby, um, a bit of college rugby and a bit of club rugby. Ended up playing for a club that um, Dave knew, who was an Australian guy that played uh, rugby for Manly and uh, uh, rugby league for St. George, first grade for St. George. He ended up being the American Eagles um, 5'8". So Mm -hmm. I played um, club rugby with him in Philadelphia. I'll tell you what, it does wonders for your ego playing rugby in the US, I can tell you that.
0: I bet, yeah. Um,
1: (laughs) uh, So – but again, that that it was great playing in the US because you're actually a lot of guys would start late when they were playing. Mm-hmm. And that again, it would you bring it back to first principles because you're teaching people who are raw and didn't necessarily understand the game. And so it was this, it was this them trying to understand the principles and why you do things. Because that basically uh, older players, and a lot in the US, because they sort of start playing out of college. Yeah don't necessarily understand the game yeah. so again it, it was this it, and it, that's why I engaged with me um, especially playing in the US because of that that rawness and taking it back to first principles um, but I came back to Australia I did a bit more coaching and then I through a job opportunity moved to Melbourne um, did some more coaching ended up coaching some first 15 here in Melbourne at some of the at one of the rugby schools um, and through that I got involved in the schoolboy schoolboy rugby um, so I ended up um, uh, coaching the Victorian schoolboys. Um, so I, I did that a couple of times. Um, I don't know if it was through any fault of mine, but the, the, the couple of times I've been involved with the, the Vic school boys was the, the times they actually um, had the best results mm-hmm. with it. But I, I was also involved with some, a couple of really good or a set of really good coaches at the time, but we also had some really good players. Mm-hmm. So um, So we had guys like um, um, Junior Le Lofi, who, who ended up playing for the Reds and playing for Zebra. Um, um, a guy named Eddie Marker, who was a, who was a um, his uncles played for the All Blacks. He ended up playing for Toulouse. Mm-hmm. Um, a few other guys that ended up going into the storm under 20 system. Uh, Robbie, Valenti, Robbie Val, Valentini's older brother um, played, who ended up playing for um, Melbourne Rising in the NRC. And then later on, in a, a couple of the other um, Vic teams, um, Hunter Paisami, yep. um, Rob Valentini, uh, sorry, not Rob, um, uh, Rob Leota, Jordan Uelasi. So um, I had the opportunity through that to to be involved in some really quality players. Uh, but also, um, I was head coach of the uh, the Junior Gold, the Victorian Junior Gold team in the first year of the victoria uh, Junior Gold competition, which was a Junior Under fifteen, Under seventeen comp set up about 2015, 2014 um, and again you know coaching people like Rob Valentini and you just knew that like these were quality players and they were they were genuine Victorian players that came up through the system yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it just it said something about I think the quality of what the rebels had brought to the state at the time that it created the pathways, and the expertise to allow those players to come through. So people like Nick yeah. Henderson, who was in charge of the pathways mm. back then, created the systems to allow those players to come through. Um, and, and so there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of, there is a lot of talent um, mm. in Victoria. And, and basically those pathways were being created at the time.
0: It's interesting on that note, I I want to ask you, I, you know, being from Perth and having the force since um, 205 and and I I I guess there were academies or they started to bring in probably, you know, youth programs and things around that time. Is it critical that each, let's say we, we were trying to create a pathway in South Australia where there's no super rugby team. Do you think it's critical that you have a, a shopfront product like a super rugby team in say Adelaide to create that pathway, or is it possible for rugby to start looking at ways in which they can capture, um, you know, perhaps non-traditional communities without the, the great expense of having to install a team and, and put the pressure on a, you know, a team like the force or the rebels to suddenly be competitive within,
1: you know, a short period of time. Uh, That's a good question. And I'm not really sure I know the answer. Because I guess the, the,
0: I- the, the common thing people say is oh young kids need someone to look up to and I often say well that's a, that's true but I was a kid in Perth I looked up to the wallabies and there was no so I was I was still loved rugby even though despite the fact there was no um force at the time um, and there was a grade system, there was a representative system and you know you knew that if you made WA team you go to the schoolboys and perhaps beyond that you could make something of it but um I guess it's just a question I sort of wonder whether in this day and age, you know, rugby has sort of really found that, you know, to get a community really engaged and to get junior participation up, they sort of need a, an elite system within that same kind of ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I really don't know the answer to that. But what I do know, or what my gut feel is, regardless of where a player is, if they are talented enough, there's a pretty strong sense that they will be picked up. And the reason they'll be picked up is, Having been to uh, plenty of schoolboy championships and having those, when you have either the rugby league scouts or the school scouts out and about, if you've got a decently talented individual, whether it's from Victoria, whether it's from South Australia or, or Western Australia or wherever, they will most likely be picked up either by bringing them into Sydney or Brisbane, either through the school system in that way so so just from a talent perspective they won't they won't miss out because they are from um one of the other states yeah
0: um
1: the, you know there may be maybe some maybe some might be um missed out but i mean obviously you know rob uh, valentini for example i mean he he ended up he got picked up by the brumbies out of the schoolboys victorian schoolboys before he, he he played um any senior sort of rebels he played sort of junior rebels mm. in victoria um so I mean, it's just like the old you know Ewan McKenzie was out of Victoria, but he yeah. he he went as a, as a junior and there's plenty of juniors that have traveled out of Victoria over the years yeah um, 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 yeah I guess um, I guess
0: my my because I, I made a point in a previous podcast episode about looking at that 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 trajectory from a kind of a non-rugby community into the rugby you know pathway and 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 observing and I'm wondering if there's any examples of kids that were grew grew up in a very afl family mindset and sort of made that switch and went in because if you look at the guys from say wa um halet petty godwin even ollie who just you know came through yeah his parents are poms um yeah uh godwin was born in i think zimbabwe and Halep petty south africa and again valentini and leota and all these guys from melbourne they're from kind of Islander backgrounds where rugby really is, you know, maybe league, but certainly rugby is, is their sort of prominent thing. So yeah. is, are there players, and, and this is, I think, rugby's big strategy and perhaps predicament is can it, can it convert those guys um, from Melbourne and, and Perth uh, who are growing up in, in very big AFL communities and, and, and start pulling that talent away at the, the youth level?
1: That's that's a good question. Like I've been out of the sort of Victorian pathway for a little while now, but there's a there's a couple of guys that are with the Rebels that that played in the in the rugby schools in Melbourne that sort of came through the systems, came through the clubs, and I don't know their background. Maybe they're expats in that way, but but they they it seems to me that there seems to be a more um, diverse group of players coming through. Now, but again, that's very much from an outsider's perspective, just seeing what's um, just seeing what's going around. Um, so, just just coming back to me uh, with this conversation. <laughs> sorry, no, all I so just what I was doing all this coaching. I ha, I was one day someone said to me, "Oh, by the way, the Wallabies are in town. Can someone hold a video camera?" And I went, "Oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that." So I went down. This is late two thousand. So this is two thousand nine when Robbie Deans was the coach. So I went down to training and said, oh, can you just stand here with the video camera? Sweet. I, I was happy as a pig in shit, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and they said, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, well, can you come back tomorrow and do that? Yeah. No worries. Um, what do you do on Saturday? Well, I was going to come to the game. No, we'll come to the game. I'll get you to film at the game. Oh yeah. No worries. <laughs> so, so filmed at the game. So we'll come down to the change room afterwards. I'll show you how to download, download the video onto the, onto the laptop. Yeah. yeah, No worries. Okay, this, thanks very much, Simon. Um, what are you doing next year? Yeah, I'll, I'll be around. Well, come and help us again. So next year, it was come to training, hold the camera. This is how you clip. This is how you download, come to the game. This is how you set up the, the, the laptop at the broadcast fan. And so this was before universities had um, performance analyst degrees. And, mm. and the guy, Andrew Sullivan, who was the Wallabies analyst, who was Robbie Dean's analyst at the Crusaders and when Robbie was at the All Blacks, yeah. Um, he was a basically an it guy so while i was doing this coaching while i was had a basically all this coaching and all this other rugby stuff was all passion driven i wasn't paid for it i had a job i had a profession outside of that i was doing all this on the side but it was um i was slowly learning these other aspects of it so that to the point where i ended up um in fact that's when i first met ben in 2010 because he actually helped um videoing that particular melbourne test as well and he came on he was just got the job as the uh, the rebels analyst yep. and politely said well if you can do this with the bolly you can reckon you can help me at the rebels so i was literally fifth in the door at the rebels when they had an office in st kilda road we were clipping we were clipping video from the premiership and shoot Shield to, to form the first squad mm. at the rebels um and then it was then e- every year when the rebels were down but it ended up going on tour with them. Um, The highlight being the uh, 2013 British and Irish Lions tour, sitting in the coach's box, watching careers destroyed (laughs) in the back of the coach's box. Uh, I see that. I I mean, I say that pretty harshly, but it's it's an amazing... Unless you're in that environment, it is just mind-boggling to understand the pressure of what happened in that environment. And just to be... Just to be there, whether you're sitting in the you know coach's box in Super Rugby or or at an international, just to just to watch what's happening at that level is is just actually it's it's amazing to see what goes on at that level. Mm. Um, and so and then that basically then um, led me to have a greater understanding at a performance level, um, and which then actually gave me this uh, sort of helped me down the track of. Uh, what everyone's doing doesn't seem to be working. So there yeah. has to be a better way, which is when Ben came back from Japan after his last coaching stint in Japan and said, Hey, I've got this idea. And it really gelled with, it really gelled with my own coaching um, around my ideas around. Um, I always coached for general play because yeah. that's where the, that's where most of the play was. And that's where you needed the most of the understanding and so I really coached around understanding. So when he explained it to me, it just absolutely sat with me. And, and he said, I, you know, I think we can make something of this.
0: And you guys have obviously just,
1: you know, I mean, it sounds like you guys just met at the right time in terms of both your oh,
0: your careers and, and sort of where you were and how you viewed the sport and all these other things.
1: Oh, it is. It is. It's amazing. We actually had this conversation today in the office, um, how things could have been like basically his his life and my life, how it intersected and it sort of created what we've created, how it just one little change of direction or one little circumstance could have changed it completely. It's uh, it's it's
0: almost a commentary on cohesion itself, the fact that you've both sort of developed this idea, but you have have joint understandings because you've both worked in a similar environment. And it's funny, I mean, I I do, maybe I overthink this stuff these days. I, I went last weekend with my missus to see the, Red Hot Chili Peppers in London. They played and a great, great concert. And you know, we sort of looking at the band and they've basically got the original band. You know, two of them, Flea and Anthony Kiedis, were at high school together. And like their third member, who died back in the eighties, was also at high school. And then I think the drummer and guitarist that they've got now, uh, they're the the guys that were from like ninety ninety or whatever. Um, yeah. But it is. It's just like you watching these guys. They're just. It's like a well-oiled machine, and and they're all mates and they all know each other and they've been playing for you know. Well, they've known each other for over forty years and playing that yeah. long. And it just it you know it, it does it does seem like there's got to be something in that, and I feel like that's that's what I kind of keep banging on about. People is that there are examples not just in rugby but all over the world and across different industries where you know success and 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 high performance does sort of just. Directly linked towards familiarity between people.
1: Yeah, and and that's true. And I'm sure, again, people listening in to this story again. Oh my god, they're banging on about a cohesion again. <laughs> um, but I have to say, so I was in New Zealand a month ago, sort of doing a, a workshop with it with a team over there, and it was literally a six hour workshop to download, um, you know, the minimum based amount of information. the the organization and that's the organization from because the chairman was in the ceo and that was even part of their sort of commercial department as well to understand the implications Mm -hmm. certain implications around um, long-term development and uh, as well as the coaching staff and then the junior staff and the academy staff um, within that as well just to get an idea about um, you know what all the factors are that come into it because it's just it's just not it's not black and white there are so many different sort of factors associated with it um, um, that sort of uh, that, that that drive cohesion in, in, in an environment. Mm. Um, yeah. So what I um, thought we'd perhaps
0: also discuss is I guess what's what's happened in um, the last sort of season with Super Rugby because it's been a really interesting. I guess must have been interesting for you guys to look at uh, two new teams, Moana Pacifica and the Fijian Drua, um, coming into this well new kind of iteration of super rugby um and you know i'm looking at the stats i just did a podcast with some of the guys from another from the other rugby podcast where we were looking at the the various results and you know pretty impressive that um both those teams were able to get wins um one one against the brumbies and one against the hurricanes in in the case of mana pacifica but yeah what what were your sort of observations as a as, as guys looking in it and, and looking at how they had to put these teams together?
1: Uh, well, the overall, the results are not shocking mm. um, just by the nature of the fact that going into this, going into the competition just basically because they are first-year squads and, and it's common sense and it's a no-brainer that their cohesion is going to be low. Mm. When your cohesion's low, you defend very poorly. If you defend, um, basically, if your cohesion's low, you're going to let in lots of points, and that's that's pretty well that what the case was. Um, you have to feel for Mono Pacifica quite a bit because of they had probably the most disrupted season, yeah. just because of the games were cancelled, which means they had to. It's almost like they ran two squads. When you run two squads, you can't necessarily develop as well mm. um, as the other teams. So it was working against them. Um, pretty well it like it was good that they got a a, a couple of wins um now those couple of wins i i I absolutely don't don't want to devalue um those wins because you know a a, a winner is a win and and it it's obviously positive on the organization but it was probably more a function of the opposition that was for themselves Mm. in that in that what especially the hurricanes um game because um what the hurricane sort of put up. And, and we see this a lot over Super Rugby. So for example, with um, the Sunwolves over time, the Southern Kings early on, and the Jaguars that is sorry, when they first started up, what you find, what we found is that teams often put up their sort of their B team. And, and inherent in the B team is they're naturally um, a low cohesion team. The low cohesion, they tend to not be able to defend very well, or mm. or not be able to score very well, and so uh, in some cases, that's that that's what happened with, um, monoa Pacifica and, and Fiji Drua to a to a certain extent. So, uh, but you've got to start somewhere with it, and I think and I think there is a real um, the the positive thing about Fiji and Drua and Mono Pacifica is not just about those two teams, it's about what they potentially bring to the the, the rugby ecosystem and the cohesion of um, the other teams around them. Yeah. Because that's what's fundamentally lacking, especially in international rugby, where you have like the Fijian national team and um, uh, Manu Samoa and the Tongan team. That their players are spread so far and wide that you just have this complete inability to create um, any level of cohesion in those particular teams, even though you're absolutely chock a blocker full of talent. Yeah. Um, but you're up against it just by the nature of the way the players are um, put together. So when you have an environment that you can create a t- tier two, Uh, level of cohesion, um, whether that's Indrua going straight up to Fiji or Manoa Pacifica, you know, providing some for Mano Samoa and some for Tonga. Mm. Um, And then that coming back as well um, will be positive. And then, you know, Manoa Pacifica, if they can then potentially try and align somehow with the NPC a bit stronger, then they can get something else happening um, and develop that further but they have to, unfortunately for mono pacifica they're always going to be up against it because they're not aligned at the tier three yeah. so in a way they're almost like a proxy australian team at the moment because they don't have a good tier three they will always struggle um new zealand teams have a natural competitive advantage because they're sitting above the npc yeah. um, at the moment even though mono pacifica has thrown a little bit of a Dynamic spanner in the works with New Zealand rugby. So it, it's almost because obviously we, you know, we've been quite vocal about the influence of expansion in Australian rugby. um In a way, Mono Pacifica has created that same dynamic to a slightly lesser extent in New Zealand rugby. So, mm. uh, and that's going to have an impact in uh the stability of NPC through to Super Rugby and then eventually the All Blacks. So, The great conspiracy of trying to devalue the All Blacks is working through other methods.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I guess let's talk about the tier two and Super Rugby teams in Australia. So we've got, you know, we've had five five teams have sort of had. uh, It's it's funny. I think the kind of the Reds seem to have gone a bit backwards this year after having you know a fairly strong resurgence. And, and and being almost like a it was almost like a two horse race between them and the Brumbies for a couple of years. And then um the Waratahs, you know, probably most improved award this year. And then the the Rebels and and, and my 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 team, the Force, disappointingly went uh took a few steps backwards. And I, I could only assume with the force that, you know, that they they'd sort of invested in say playmakers like Cabelli and Miotti last year. And they just lost them, you know, so they had to kind of build again their their sort of halves, but you know, broadly speaking, we're again no real surprises across the how the Australian teams performed. Or were you guys um, pleasantly surprised by the Waratahs? You know, play, playing perhaps better than expected.
1: Uh, yeah, no real surprises. I mean, the Waratahs, because obviously everyone's looking at the Waratahs and said, "Haven't they done great? What great improvement?" And you know, a lot of people have been vocal about it on Twitter. Oh my God! It's the same thirty guys, and but it's a new coach. The coach must be a genius, and you know Darren Coleman. Success follows him. There's no doubt about it. So, um, last year um, when he was at Gordon, so he's there's no doubt about it. He's a good coach, and he gets he gets the best out of his players. Um, but if you look at Darren Coleman in this year at the Waratahs, it is like. If you take Brad Thorne and you put Brad Thorne into, uh, say, 2020 or 2019 at the Reds, people would go, oh, my God, Brad Thorne's a genius because Mm. he's taken a team that was really bad with the same group of players and now they are good. Mm. And it's basically been a year with the same players developing their understanding, getting a, a year older, and now they're playing at a different level. Because their cohesion is naturally higher, so it's yeah. the same dy- same dynamic, but it just so happened to be at the Waratahs. It was with a new coach, and so it just makes it easier to create that narrative. It's mm. around the coach. So the Waratahs played. Waratahs played as expected. I mean, they they uh, um, they had good numbers when they beat the Crusaders. They had poor numbers mm. um, in that way. So. Um, so the, the Waratahs for us was they played to expectations based on where they're going, and the real positive thing about the Waratahs it's not um, just Darren Coleman it's it's Andrew Blades it's Paul Dorn and their identification of and this is, includes Darren Coleman of the importance of um, sort of the New South Wales pathway in creating a strong new south wales team mm. and so there is an understanding about what builds success in a team yeah. and them working towards okay well let's 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 build something underneath the waratahs that will um, eventually be able to make that sustainable
0: when, when you guys are approaching clubs or organizations do you in the lead up do you identify things that perhaps board have done like decisions they've made that you can kind of outline for them and say, look, this was a decision that was made. And three years later, you know, and as you said, these are often things that are hard to probably bring up, but is that something you guys are able to, able to sometimes do?
1: Oh, we can. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things we do, one of the things we do when we work with the team is called a performance audit. Here is a history of as a club. You can look at the decision recruiting decisions over time when we say recruiting decisions, that's recruiting decisions reflected in TWI, and then ultimately yeah. the markets on the field. How that has impacted performance, and so you can see where the where poor decisions in, in, impacted TWI and ultimately the in-game markers, and where positive decisions impacted mm-hmm. it. Sometimes those positive decisions might take a number of years to to um, manifest itself. Um, And so part of that is to show this is when this decision was made, this was the outcome where the problem sometimes arises is when you are presenting to the board, the poor decisions that they have made. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily often sit very well with, or you are presenting to a board and said, man, I wish you were here, you know, three years ago. And the response was we were, but none of you were in the room. Yeah. So, so part of, and this is, and I mentioned this earlier, much earlier on that often the work we do goes against, um, I think self-interest is maybe a way of saying it, but, but um, sometimes some people don't necessarily like having those aspects identified, but that's part of the question. And, 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 and Ben does this heavily in corporate, you know, talking to companies and especially talking to boards, why are you here? Do you will you have a problem if success comes after your tenure? Yeah. So it's really about understanding and alignment within an organisation of part of that. But it's really fundamentally, and it comes back to that whole governance piece I talked about. That's why we look at ourselves as a, as a, as a governance um, business because it, it comes back down to what that part of the business is, is doing and the decisions they make and how they, then that filters down mm. onto, the, on, onto the on-field part of it.
0: It seems like, I mean, that seems to be a critical thing because you look at, say, you know, decisions that need to get made and let's talk specifically about Australian rugby. At some point, there has to be a sacrifice, whether it's a a board or a chairman sacrificing their their short-term, you know, sort of status on the board by making a decision that might be unpopular or, um, you know, a team having to sort of be sacrificed as we saw with the force or in the case of, say, building up tier three, do some of the existing club competitions need to be realigned and, you know, basically meddled with to try and bring us into line with what we need? And I suppose, like, that to me seems to be the current conundrum with Australian rugby is where where's the give and take going to happen? Because obviously there's no one wants to get rid of a super rugby team. In fact, now they're potentially talking openly about expanding the domestic scene. But, you know, Shoot Shield obviously like to hold on to their you know, sanctity of their competition as would Brisbane. I imagine WA and Melbourne are probably more um, flexible if it came to sort of changing their competitions to sort of align with something that's more domestic. But, you know, where do you see perhaps, you know, I guess, you know, a future opportunity that could be taken, especially around tier three, if, if that's probably what we should be looking at in terms of something that's going to support and make our five super rugby teams more competitive than they currently are.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because, because it's obviously we can identify the mechanism and these mechanisms. And obviously one of the criticisms about our work early on was, you know, we, we're, we're not going to cut back to three teams. And that's and I think that's that's something that we never explicitly said that we should do. All we did was identify the mechanism when we had three teams. We know we've got five teams and that's the way it is. Well, effectively six teams if you throw in um, um, Fiji and Drua into our conference. Mm. Um, and okay, well, how, what do we do? Need to do now to create a mechanism or a structure that's going to allow those five teams to develop in a positive way. That's going to be that are going to be functional um, going forward. You know, if if hypothetically we if we continue with Super Rugby Pacific and then to become a a, a a platform to enable a competitive, you know, wallabies globally. Um, so it's very difficult for us to go in and say, okay, shoot shield. I know you've got a hundred plus years of history. I think we might cut you down to six. Mm-hmm. You can't like, that is, that is um, I would need to change my dress and <laughs> um, sort of like, you can't, that, that, that's sort of a question that yeah. like, that is, that's very, very hard to try and do. Um, but there are other ways to do it. There's absolutely other ways to create um, um, levels of sort of cohesion th- outside of that. Mm. But obviously a functioning tier three um, is, is the, the most obvious way because that's ultimately the engine room of New Zealand rugby. That is the engine room of South African rugby. I mean, it's the engine room of, I mean, Leinster's basically created their own. Because yeah. they don't have one, you know. Welsh rugby is going through all sorts of turmoil because they don't have a tier three, yeah. um, a functioning tier three at the moment. So, but and does, neither does, neither the in- Scottish rugby. So yeah, I
0: was going to so say, does English Premier League have it in the sense that most of the say Gallagher Premier teams have a, a reserve grade side that play occasionally?
1: No, well, not really. Uh, it's kind of it's it's been thrown the, the people had. Uh, had relationships with other clubs. Saracens had a relationship with Bedford. Um, they had a um they have the premiership cup, which is um um sort of six rounds during the the the, the premiership season where they sort of get to play their B teams. Yeah. And they also had a what they call the premiership shield uh, as well, but it's not a true tier three in that sense. And and thank thank the maker that they don't have a functional tier three, because if they had a functional tier three, that would only enhance their premiership clubs, which would only enhance England even further yeah. in that way. And even though you look at you look at France with the Pro D two, it's not a tier three in the true sense of the word because they are independent teams. It's, it's basically a, a first division, second division yeah. professional team. You don't necessarily have that flow to, flow through. That was the great advantage. And, you know, we've waxed lyrical about the Brumbies story. The Brumbies were off the back of the kookaburras and yeah. that's the real function of what the tier three is for. So I did a tweet. I, I put out a tweet um, uh, beginning of this year, last year, when, when everyone was starting to talk about the, um, investment. And the fact that the fact that investing in a tier three, it's not a commercial decision. It's a return on investment decision because ultimately Mm. that helping super rugby, which ultimately making super rugby stronger, which will make the wallaby stronger in the way. So it's not about making a commercially viable product, which obviously people want to do and try and make as much as possible. But if you look at everything, whether it's profitable and whether it works, then we'll probably never have a tier three yeah. in that way.
0: I, I liken it to um, cricket with sort of sh- um, Sheffield Shield, which, you know, for, for yeah. forever was was barely watched by anyone. I don't even know if do they even yeah. televise it anymore. You might stream it or catch it on the radio. But that is responsible for creating the sort of cricketers that we get in the Australian cricket team. You know, there's only six teams and you have to be, a proper first-class cricketer over two or three seasons in Sheffield Shield before you even get considered to be um, one of the the starting 11. And you know Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know whether you guys have looked into English cricket, but obviously they've still got a massive player group, but it's spread across a a large number of counties. And I think there's a lot of criticisms at the moment. And and I'm hearing sort of conversations now. I think a few people, maybe Kevin Peterson, a few former cricketers have come out and saying that they need to try and address their county cricket set up um, to create mm-hmm. better better test players.
1: So that's, that's why we sort of, you look at, say, the Western force is sitting on a domestic competition that, and, and again, this is an outsider's point of view. I don't know the history of um, Western Australian Perth rugby, but potentially they could mould it however they wanted to sit under them to, to create pathways. Um, you know, they've got a, a strong benefactor. Um, On that side of Australia. So potentially they, 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 you know, they may be able to create something that absolutely enhances what they're trying to do there and not have to worry about the machinations of what sits underneath them, Mm. which is what, you know, the Eastern Northern States um, have to deal with in, in itself. So
0: if we talk about, um, I mean, there's a few other competitions that have just ended, URC, which had um, South African teams in it for the first time, and it was interesting that the South Africans, I think at the start of the competition, um, you know, and it, you, you get a lot of vocal people from Ireland and South Africa especially talking about it, and, and and there was all these rumblings about, oh, the South African teams aren't up for it. And then, as you guys would say, they back-ended quite well, and, and obviously they had a lot of... Um, home games in the second part of the season when COVID restrictions were lifted, but um, you know the sort of South African teams tended to, you know, they did very well towards the end. In fact, dominated the the series with the famous uh, Bulls winning in winning in in Leinster of all places.
1: Yeah, I think um, it was a weird competition, especially when those uh, the first iteration of the South African games because mm. a number of the um, a number of the the um, Welsh and Irish um, and Scottish teams sent their B teams mm. across and so the, at the time it wasn't necessarily a reflection of where the, the nature of the competition was at so um, obviously there was a sense that Leinster um, was always going to be strong on the way through I mean the Irish provinces generally tend to be, um, the strongest of the competition, just based on on the fact that they are um, generally the highest TWI teams, and it's just mm-hmm. the nature of the way they are put together um, with it. But um, one of the the functions around um, when when you are a team like Leinster and that you are competing at the top end of of the major competitions, sometimes you get stretched thin. So I, I know on Twitter people are actually saying this is the worst, this is a disaster of the season. But to do what they've done, to be able to do what they've done, is is still pretty impressive. You don't walk away with silverware, but it's still pretty impressive as an organisation yeah. um, to be able to do it. So,
0: I guess I, I think that's one of the things I've sort of said to people when they just say, "Oh, well, you know, let's just put the Brumbies and best Brumbies and Reds together, and we'll we'll make a better team." I said, "No, I, it's not as simple as you will win a World Cup or you will win a series. It's more about consistency, and that's what I've sort of observed when I look at." Um, you know teams that seem to be consistent is that the the, the cohesion or the, the the sort of the leveling of their the, the streamlining of their pathways it just tends to produce more consistency you know italy will italy ever win a six nations in our time uh our, our lifetime i don't know but presumably they're getting better by having professionalism really you know um embraced within their their teams and Two teams that are getting to play regular, um, and I, I don't know how many Italian players play outside of of Italy. Um, is it Garbizzi plays?
1: Is he plays in France,
0: um, but I think maybe there's one or two other guys that play. But broadly, they've they've got most of their guys playing URC, don't they?
1: Yeah, but they they suffer from uh, a they've got the um, uh, what do they call it series ten. Um, they, they suffer from they suffer from having an issue with their tier three right. as well. So yes, they've got zebra, um, yes they've got Benetton, but there's some structural issues in the way they are those teams are put together, yeah. um, and part of that is because where how they are how they are put together, um, and so that will always be an issue um, for Italy in a way that they won't necessarily be able to optimise that mm-hmm. through to Italy. Um, like Italy will be. You know, Argentina in two thousand seven it's probably the. I think I'm just throwing back here. Might have been their best World Cup. Mm-hmm. That core group of players for the national team had been together for quite a period of time, yeah. and that's effectively what drove that. So at the moment, that'll be that'll be Italy's driver mm-hmm. until they get this structure right, and so that's a critical thing for them.
0: Yeah. Um- I I just want to quickly, as an aside, talk about soccer. And and I I know there was a recent – a mate of mine from Macedonia, and um, he was quite excited when they knocked (laughs) Italy out of World Cup um, qualification. And I said, oh, out of interest. I said, do you know much about the players, like where they play? And he said, oh, you know, some in the German league, this and that. But um, on on a quick look with him, I was on a work trip with him, and we were looking, it was just remarkable the number of players in that team that were sort of above the age of 25 – but it all played sort of national under 16, under 18, under 20 um, levels all around about the same time. So quite possibly you had a a large group of guys that were all sort of, you know, had been playing together for the national team at various representative levels over a kind of 10-year period.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's a good example. That example, similar to the Iceland, England 2016 Euro example, um, and, and then take it to the nth degree, um, Italy, uh, uh, Germany beating Brazil in the semifinals of 2014's mm. um, World Cup for, uh, 7-1. If you look at the German team, it is just it's just got um, yeah, two-thirds of the team, three-quarters of the team is from Bayern Munich, and most of those guys have played not only for the national team but age grade for the national team. So it just had everyone knew exactly. What they're doing. If you look at the, the replay of the goals, it look, literally looks like a training run, which is yeah. not just a function of Germany itself, but it's also a function of uh, lack of cohesion in the Brazilian team. Yes, they're all great players, but they just hadn't played together and actually had an injury going into the game, which which put them into into sort of chaos, um, so to speak. So, so if like Macedonia and Italy play five times, they might only win once. Iceland and England might only, you know, play five times and Iceland might only win once. But what it does do is put a country that probably literally has a tenth the wage bill as the other team, it puts them in with a capacity to actually be in that position to win.
0: Yeah.
1: So, yeah. and and one thing we say about cohesion is high cohesion teams, it doesn't mean you're always going to win, but if you're a low cohesion team, it means you just can't win. Yeah, and that's right. what we find across multiple competitions, and it's just like the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup. Uh, since two thousand three, there's a band of, there's a cohesion band to who wins. If you're not in that band, you you, you basically don't have a, don't have a shot.
0: So coming uh, into the, the World Cup, I mean, let's talk about some of the internationals. Firstly, Australia England. We've got, you know, obviously a huge expectation on on the team to come away with, well, that's firstly a win against England, which we haven't done in the last sort of ten or eleven. Matchups, but also to 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 get a bit of revenge for t- 2016. And it's funny, I I asked Stuart Lancaster how he felt about that, given that you know he was effectively lost his job after the the the, the 2015 World Cup, and so nine months later, the, the same group of players go to Australia with Eddie Jones and win three 0 But um, yeah, what are your thoughts uh, of the this this lineup with a you know an Australian team coming into perhaps their was it their third season under a new coach and and Eddie Jones's uh, English players, some of whom are um, uh, a bit of mixture of, of new players, but a few a few old grizzled veterans uh, he's brought brought down.
1: So just from a purely from a game perspective, I won't have any opinion on the game until I've got yeah. the lineups. When yeah. I've got the lineups, we can run the lineups and then go. Okay, here's the strength of each team. Here's the weakness of it. The interesting thing about it is that. Both, I have no clue what the Wallabies are going to look like. Mm. Um, But the issue is going to be, if you look at what's happening in New Zealand at the moment, whether or not there's going to be any COVID outbreaks. Um, But um, the issue is going to be, there's going to be strength on both sides because there's going to be combinations within the teams that have been there in the past. But that's not the issue. That's not going to be the issue about where the strength lies. It's ultimately going to be where the weaknesses are. Mm. and if the weaknesses are going to be in the critical spots. And so an example of that is, if we go back to Super Rugby, Brumbies versus the Blues in the semifinal, you know, um, the the Brumbies were in within one penalty of winning the game yeah. in the 82nd minute or whatever it was. But the issue was their attack spine was under capacity for that game because they had lost um, Iketau, And so they for us, that was the difference in the game that they basically weren't able to score as many points as they potentially could have, um, in the game. So there was a specific weakness associated with the Brumbies mm. for that, for that particular game. So, um, so it will depend on where is the strength and the weakness is going to be on those both teams. So, um, and I, at this point in time, have no idea yeah. um, where that's going to be. So, um, and it's not just, it's not just about um, about teams defending weakness. That weakness might be in the ability to attack. The weakness might be in the attack launch. Mm. The weakness might be in the back three, the ability to uh, take care of the kick chase.
0: Yeah. Knowing, so, knowing a little bit about, I suppose, coaches and coaches' mindsets, do you think both coaches or the selection panels will be looking at this? Obviously, they want to win the series, but there's also that, sort of thought ahead of, well, I also need to get a team and a squad ready for the World Cup. So, you know, because you know, we saw last year with France, they sort of brought out the quote-unquote B team, but many of those players that they did play then ended up being pretty critical members of the, the Six Nations team this year that won. So I guess sort of there's this idea of, you know, international teams and touring now have to kind of look at loading, um, you know, bloody new players, testing out combinations even. Um, you know, do you sort of see, did, does that sort of seem to be different to what it was like 10, 15 years ago where a, a touring team tended to sort of start and finish with its sort of its, its, its best players available? Or
1: at least yeah, it felt like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I was as, you know, as in, in days of yore, it always seemed like it was the best team, uh, but that may have been the perception. But then again, we probably didn't scrutinize it as much. Um, but uh, as an example, you look at the, so the spring box under Rassi Erasmus leading up to the 2019 rugby world cup final, he started from nothing, 18 months out. Mm-hmm. So he basically didn't have a choice. So because he got the rain so late in the piece, it was like, okay, these are my guys. I don't really have a choice. This is what I've got. I've now got to sort of pick and stick up to the, up to the rugby world cup. And it was almost there was a degree of stability in him, but it was forced because of the time frame associated with it. Mm. So this is the function now between, in fact, all the games this weekend is where they think they are on that timeline. Do I still have time to experiment or is now is it is it the starting line between now and potentially 20-odd games between now and um, uh, October the 23rd, whenever it is? Yeah yeah uh yeah. Rugby, w- rugby world cup final so what have i got to do and so of course you know elite coaches being elite coaches will always be thinking about uh the win loss associated with it but it's going to be how much of that am i taking into account versus because ultimately whoever wins this test australia england on the weekend if one of these teams wins the rugby world cup final mm. no one's going to care who won this test no um in 18 months time with it so
0: except except you guys who will be looking back and going well that was the and and i always am interested in that those 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 test matches where you know it's almost like a sliding doors moment where a team does really well mm -hmm. and then they go well that's it that's our that's our our team let's stick with that And and it feels like if we see a wallaby team selected in the next three games that wins and wins well and, and wins comfortably, yeah. Um, yeah. It, at least wins in a positive sense that hey we didn't jag it we actually played well enough to to outplay England. You can't help but feel that almost starts to become the the blueprint twenty three for the next you know yeah. twenty games. That's,
1: that's an excellent example. We call it what we call action bias, and so it's um it's it's that's yeah that's almost that sliding door moment that it almost forces stability. Actually, we won. The reason you could, the team could have won because the opposition could have been woeful, but that's yeah. not necessarily looked into the context of it. We absolutely, that's what we look at. It's always around context. It's always about both teams. Yeah. And that's what, when we work with teams, it's really giving them an idea around context. Yes, you won, but the other team was terrible. Don't get ahead of yourself. Or you lost, but the other team, oh my God, they were fantastic. Don't make any rash react, you know, decisions based on that. Yeah, and, and obviously that sliding door moment A really good example of that is In the AFL a few years ago Brisbane Lions They actually were The year before they were terrible But they actually beat West Coast Eagles That won the Premiership The year before in their first game mm-hmm. And for me it was, it was that sliding door moment Now obviously again Outside of the view I don't know what they were thinking But it was like Actually I think this is our team And they actually had a really good season For yeah. the rest of the season Because it was like Actually these are the players If they got flogged exactly the same players, but it might have created a different sort of set of scenarios yeah. for them around decision making um look I'll, t- I'll, I'll sort of have to round this off just because I, I might have
0: to, to end but I want to I, I did want to touch on and, and sort of relate to what we're talking about is, is is sticking with groups that work is that the penrith Panthers and rugby league's sort of current uh trend I think you know we, we talked about in um in a previous episode when I touched upon this episode. Uh, when I touched upon this subject a couple of years ago, I think the example was the storm and the Melbourne storm and how critical that was for Queensland. And now you sort of, since in fact, since that time, the, the Panthers seem to have improved in what, 2020. They won title last year and now they're probably looking like, you know, decent chance to go again. But obviously the impact that's had on New South Wales state of origin um, is it sort of just, are you seeing people talk about it in the terms of, Cohesion and anything, or it also it always seems to be a lot of focus on say Brad Fittler and oh Freddie, Freddie Fittler's just, you know, he's he's come good, he's managed to get the best out of the players. Where it really does seem quite obvious what's going on when you look at the number of <laughs> peppers players in that team. Um
1: well, it's obvious it's obvious looking through the lens of lens of cohesion, but um it always 95 percent of the time from the it'll always come down to the individual skill of the, well, the skill of the players or the skill of the coach so that's generally what the perception will be. The great thing about the Panthers for us is even when they were you know down the bottom of the ladder uh, three years ago, four years ago, their markers said we see something happening here yeah. um, for the Panthers. So it was like that with the Reds. I mean i I, I was in the in the boardroom at the Queensland Reds in 2018. Presenting to those guys, saying, you know, there are positive things happening here. Um, all the markers are pointing in the right direction, um, but that's still they're still a very young they're still a very young uh, group, and that was the issue that they had this year that they didn't have the depth to, to basically yeah. to, to come through. So, um, but it's still a very positive environment. Um, but underlying issue of no tier three is always going to have an impact.
0: Yeah, and so I guess I mean going back to the Panthers, you know, if you look at an organization like that. And, and, and they obviously have, you know, they have a really big junior system, a massive catchment area. Do you think that as an organization, it's sort of something that they can then try to, uh, I guess, try to control or try to manage? Because obviously, sometimes this happens just organically without people really realizing it. Um, but do you think it's, yeah. it's possible for organizations to go, well, hey, we've got a really good system here, but why is it so successful? Is it this venture yeah. Is it these players? And what can we kind of institute to make sure that we do just keep cycling through yep. and producing, you know, wave after yes. wave of talent.
1: So there's a, there's a term called unconscious competence. And so, so whether or not it's unconscious competence or conscious competence in the Panthers, we don't know, we don't, we haven't talked to the Panthers but obviously guys coming through their junior system and going into their seniors have created this environment. And we could see that in their recruiting before they were successful through via TWI. Mm -hmm. Um, It's intergenerational. Can they produce this when their current group of players is gone, a la the Melbourne Storm, a la the Crusaders, um, those environments? That's the great refreshing thing about working with the Crusaders. It's They're not asking me what's going to happen for this game. They're asking me what's going to impact us in... In two years' time, three years' time, five years' time, yeah. um, and that's so great. that's what that that's that's what it will be for the Panthers to understand what do we ha- what what have we got to do to make this intergenerational success, and do we recognise that those players when they were juniors, because people will probably probably say, oh, I always knew those players were going to be good but did they, really, did they really think they were going to be good? And they've got to trust their system, just like the Storm trust their system, mm. just after the big three left that they had those other guys coming through because their environment, ITWI, High Cohesion Environments, allows players to play to capacity. Yeah. And so those players playing in other environments probably wouldn't perform to that same level. So they've basically got to trust their environment coming through. But having the understanding, having the context is the important part yeah. to it. And hey, look, I feel like I've seen that
0: play out quite a lot in Australian rugby and, and I've touched on it and I continue to touch on upon it, how I, I don't like seeing players move around provinces. I know it's, it's almost, it's a reflection of kind of the, 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 the way professional athletes have to move around when you've only really got the tier two, it's either that or overseas, but yeah, it, it does. It is frustrating because I think kind of from a personal point of view, it's, it's frustrating as a fan when you get attached to players playing for a certain club. And then next year they're they're playing for an opposition team, and you know that's never really pleasant as a fan. So I think yeah. I've often said that to people. Just you know, performance um, implications aside, as fans, it's frustrating when players are sort of chopping and changing teams.
1: Yeah, and, and that's it is very hard. You're you're booing someone last week, and you, you're attempting to support them yeah. um, this week. And we know that there's a lot of case studies around fan engagement and. Um, Um, work around that that we try and engage with to understand what some of the drivers are in that respect Mm -hmm. as well which Mm -hmm. is why the AFL is such a great competition it is the highest cohesion competition of anything we've measured and that's driven by the as I describe it the draconian trade laws of the AFL (laughs) but it drives fan engagement you literally grow up with players and they are part of your family and that drives this engagement and it creates you know 60,000 people at a game. I try to go to a Rebels game on the same day as a Carlton Collingwood game. Oh, my God. I can't get a park anywhere. Yeah, crazy.
0: Well, look, Simon, I really do appreciate it. Um, sorry I've got to cut this a little shorter than I would have liked, but um, no yeah, worries. maybe we can chat again. And I thoroughly enjoyed following you and Ben and the work. And, and I'm, I'm, there's a bit more to come. I'm going to hopefully sort of touch upon this and, and with the film coming out in, in, in hopefully a couple of months or a few months, I'm going to make an announcement very soon. Um, you know, maybe we could talk again. Um, I'm sure there'll be a bit of bit of feedback yeah. from, from various people about what's in the in the Docker.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks, Simon. I'll mate, talk to you again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film Gold Digger: The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host Matt Durrant. Music from this episode is by Ryan Papahatsis and Brad van der Lucht for a Fade Out Audio and will feature in the upcoming film. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby and follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.